But uh, I want to get into something to start the show off uh, this afternoon. Stephen Harper, we all remember him, right? Former conservative prime minister, did a fantastic job running our country for a few years, and uh, now is the chair of the International Democrat Union. If you're unfamiliar, that's a global alliance of right-leaning political parties that pushes for what they call center-right uh basically cooperation kind of around the world. And the reason that we want to talk about this is because Prime Minister Harper, or former Prime Minister Harper, has recently visited Hungary, the country of Hungary, to meet with their president, Viktor Orban, who is known for being, I guess the word is like a little bit more... Uh, aggressively conservative, a little bit more far right. They do things like put um, watch lists out on journalists. They censor the press, that type of thing. Uh, here to help me understand this a bit more and unpack this is Associate Professor Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science from the University of the Fraser Valley. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Professor Telford. Uh, does this concern you that Stephen Harper is meeting with uh, the president of Hungary? Well, I think, I think you've set the context for this meeting, that, that Stephen Harper is the chairman of the International Democrat uh, Union, um, and Viktor Orban's party is part of this, this union. So it's, it's part of his duties as the chairman of this organization to meet with, with fellow members uh, and, you know, say nice things about each other. You know, we can, we can question whether or not Mr. Harper sort of really um, fully believes this or whether he's just doing it as part of his his duty. But nonetheless, it's out there now that he's called for closer cooperation with Viktor Orban's party and with, with Hungary. Um, and, and I do think that raises problems for, for Canadians. Viktor Orban, as you mentioned, uh, is quite authoritarian. I don't think it's fair to say that his party is center-right. It's considerably further to the right of that, uh, suppressing many human rights uh, and undermining the democratic process in, in Hungary. Uh, essentially establishing an elected dictatorship. And here we have a former prime minister of a G7 country um, providing him support. And and that that does raise questions. Hmm. So what is the purpose of an organization like this, uh, International Democrat Union? Do, do uh, like, okay, so this is Conservative Party. Does the Liberal Party do something like, something like this, where they go around to other countries and sort of gather up support from other liberal uh, political parties? Or, and, and what is the purpose of that? Because the only people that can vote are the people in our country. So maybe just explain why, why Stephen Harper would do this or why countries would want to, you know, gather and support sort of at a global level. Sure. Um, yes, the Liberal Party, I don't know if the Liberal Party is part of an anti, any international organization, but they certainly have relationships with, with like-minded parties, most especially the Democratic Party uh, of the United States. We recently had Hillary Clinton in Canada's Liberal Party. Barack Obama has been before. Um, and they share information. Uh, they share tactics and strategies. Canadian political parties, both the Conservative and the Liberals, have learned a lot from their American counterparts, which generally are more advanced in uh, campaign tactics, uh, data analytics and politics, and, and so forth. Um, so, so parties do want to, to share information, and this is how this International Democratic Union was, was created, first by uh, Margaret Thatcher 40 years ago in the United Kingdom, and has sort of like-minded parties, the Conservative Party of Canada, the Republican Party, the Liberal Party of Australia. But it has also, as it's expanded, 
acquired some more unsavory members, and I think that is problematic. Yeah, okay. So Stephen Harper being the chair of this, one of the things that gave me pause when I read the story was, you know, he's kind of been not out of the news, but he hasn't been in government for some number of years. How much influence does something like this have over Canadian politics? How much influence will Stephen Harper have through an organization like this over Canadian politics? Well, you can certainly bet that the opposition parties or, or the governing party, the Liberals, the NDP, will make uh, light of this. And I think it makes life difficult for Pierre Polyev. You know, Pierre Polyev, on the one hand, has been fighting uh, or waging a campaign uh, for freedom. He wants to make Canada the freest country in the world. And yet his former boss is out there forming relations with uh, a party which is stripping away freedoms from its own own citizens. Um, we've also been talking a lot about, you know, electoral interference. And here Stephen Harper is engaging in the politics of a not just a foreign country, but an unsavory uh, government in a foreign country. And I think that makes Pierre Polyev's life very difficult. And certainly the NDP and the Liberals and probably the Bloc Québécois uh, will exploit that. Hmm. And what is likely to happen from here going forward with something like the International Democrat Union? And what are some of the potential outcomes of something like this happening? Well, if Stephen Harper is is at all embarrassed by this, he might want to, as in his role as chairman, have discussions within his organization about its membership. Uh, does Victor Orban's party deserve to conti- continue to have membership in this organization, or has he crossed some kind of threshold where um, he does not conform to the principles of of this uh, organization? I, I would imagine those conversations are happening in this organization. Uh, Stephen Harper surely doesn't have the power as an individual, even as chairman, to toss a member country out. Um, but if if the organization is embarrassed by these sorts of things, they might want to move in that direction. Hamish Telford is the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. We were talking about Stephen Harper uh, meeting and uh, forming a sort of alliance with International Democrat Union member uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He's the Prime Minister of Hungary and, as we've been talking about, has some sort of authoritarian tendencies and uh, there's some concerns there. So thanks so much for for being here, uh, Professor Telford, and it's something that we're definitely going to watch closely. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome, Scott. Scott Schantz in for Jill Bennett on your Friday afternoon. And as we head into the long weekend, a lot of people questioning air quality. There's been some haze out there over the last couple of days, wildfire, smoke, ozone, that type of thing. It's not unusual to get that in Vancouver, but it's still, it makes you pause and think, should we be doing this? Should we be out here? There was an air quality advisory for parts of the, of Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley uh, recently. And how does how do you respond to this? So uh, I got in touch with Dr. Emily Newhouse, and she is our guest right now. Uh, Dr. Newhouse, she's a Fraser Health Medical Health officer. And uh, Emily, talk to me about air quality. I know that this is a thing on a lot of people's minds right now. What's the situation with air in the lower mainland? Yeah, well, it's looking a little bit better today, but yesterday there was an advisory issued for ozone. Uh, Now, ozone is caused by the combination of some pollutants and sunshine and heat, transforming those pollutants into ozone, and it can result in some higher risk of breathing complications. So we we definitely have some recommendations for folks. Um, We want them to avoid strenuous outdoor activities, particularly during the mid-afternoon and early evening. 
We recommend that people stay cool, drink plenty of water, that they use their symptom management medications like their inhalers if they need it. And of course, if they can stay inside and be in cool air conditioned environments, that can help them breathe easier as well. Okay. So how, how does this translate? Like, you know, sometimes you step outside and right away, it smells like smoke, the air quality, you can kind of feel it. And other days Mm -hmm. you walk outside and it's like, the skies are blue. It's beautiful. It's cool. We're fine. Like, let's go. Does, does that make a difference or is it like, don't go by that whatsoever? Well, you know, it's it's always good to listen to those signals. If it seems hazy, if you smell smoke, that's probably a sign there is smoke and it's going to affect your breathing. But there are other sources of air pollution. So I think that's what the difference is. So what we have, uh, sm- you know, wildfire smoke causes pollution in the air that we can smell and we can see. And so definitely that's a reason to take precautions. There's also other sources of pollution like ozone where it's not as easy to perceive. I mean, sometimes you will see a haze from ozone, but um, there can be high levels of ozone and it may not be obvious. And that's one of the reasons why we issue advisories. Right. And so this, what we're experiencing right now and, and yesterday, so is related to wildfire smoke or less so? Less so. There has been a little bit of particulate matter, that's the technical term, um, for for the stuff that's in wildfire smoke. There has been a little bit of that. But actually, the the bigger issue yesterday and going into today was higher levels of ozone. And ozone actually comes from um, pollutants like nitrogen oxide, which are things that are emitted from burning fuels, even things like driving your car. And when those combine with sunshine, um, they react and they, they form ozone. And so that's why we get more of it often during the summer. We've got lots of vehicles driving other sources of pollution, and that combines with the sunlight and causes ozone. Okay. Now, I know that there's sort of this attitude, at least I know people who kind of have this attitude, when there's a, and you know, I, I don't mean to say that disparagingly, but that some people's viewpoint around things like this is, ah, whatever, it's fine, it's just a little hazy, let's go anyway. Let's go to the beach, let's go outside, go to, I don't know, the golf course, wherever people are going. Do you feel like there's a not enough regard for these type of warnings? Well, you know, I understand that, you know, people really want to get outside and get active. This is a really nice time of year, and we do really want to encourage people to be physically active. So I understand those decisions can be tricky. And so what we do encourage people to do is talk to their primary care provider um, because people who are more susceptible to some of these health effects, we actually do have more conservative recommendations for them um, in some of these advisories. So if you're someone who has breathing problems, if you have asthma or COPD, you might want to be a little bit more careful um, than, than someone who doesn't have any of those issues. And of course, you know, we, we do want people to just be mindful. I mean, sometimes um, you might be able to get outside and maybe just take it a little bit easier, like still still hang out, but not do activities that make you breathe as deeply. Mm-hmm. And um, that'll also help you reduce, you know, how much of these pollutants you breathe in. Yeah, it kind of sounds like you're saying when you say there's we have more conservative recommendations that the advisory, it's like a baseline. Like that's where we should start. And it could, you know, you might even want to be more cautious than that. Yeah, I mean, certainly for pe- for people with uh, lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, um, those folks are at higher risk, and we do want them to think about, you know, where where can I stay in a cool air conditioned environment um, that helps me breathe easier. You know, they also being mindful of heat as well as air quality. Um, 
So, yeah, we, we definitely want people to, you know, still be social, still find ways to get out, but maybe think about, you know, is there a library I can spend time in? Is there, you know, can I, can I go to a community center and be active there? Yeah. Um, what about for young kids? I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and they're always wanting to be outside. It's hard to keep them inside. Is it, is it more of a risk for kids? You know, kids do sometimes have a little bit higher risk than, say, young adults um, because they tend to uh, breathe a lot for their size. Um, so they can be more effective than others, but we also recommend recognize it's so important for them to get their exercise. So again, you know, there's a little bit of a, um, a, a kind of a risk, personal risk assessment there. You know, again, you know, having a conversation if your child has asthma, maybe reason to be particularly cautious and make sure you've had a conversation with your doctor. Okay. And sometimes I feel like if we go um, somewhere with maybe a different elevation, like if you live kind of somewhere higher up and you go down to the water, the air seems or feels a bit clearer there. Is that is that something that we could take into account? Is it different at different places in the lower mainland or is this just the same everywhere? Yeah, it is different at different places in the lower mainland, although we don't have it's not fine grain enough that we can tell you, you know, two streets over, it's going to be or, you know, uh, like, you know, a kilometer away, it's going to be a lot better. There is a map online called the Air Quality Health Index, and um, you can find it on the BC government and links from also Metro Vancouver's website. And it shows you all of the different air quality monitoring stations in the region and what the air quality looks like at those different stations. And then the Air Quality Health Index also tells you some health recommendations based on uh, those. So it's a rating from one to 10. And if it's one, that's great air quality. Go ahead, do whatever you want. And if it's getting on the higher end of that, then that's the time to, to scale back. So you can look at those and you might see some variation. But I would say one of the challenging things about air quality is it can, air moves around. So even if it, air quality looks better, you know, a, f- a few kilometers west, it might not stay the same the whole day. So hmm. that's one of the tricky pieces about that. Yeah. Okay. And maybe we'll just start to wrap it up here. But so this is my sort of long-term question as a person, you know, family lives here in the lower mainland. Is this the type of thing, like, see if you can speak to this at all. Hey, I've been living in the lower mainland. We've been having these sort of air quality advisories, wildfire smoke, that type of stuff for the last number of years. And are we going to see, like, in 20 years, it's like, oh, you have smoker lungs just because you've lived in these wildfire provinces? Mm. Or is this like... You know, I don't want to say how serious is it because, you know, I want to take it seriously and I know it is, but... Yeah, is this like, oh, you, it'll be hard for you for a day or two, and then, hey, the body heals itself. But, it, mm-hmm. like, or in 20 years, are we not even going to be able to go outside in the summer? Yeah, so that's a great question. And what we do see is we see short-term effects of these air pollutants, and we also see long-term effects. So the short-term effects, I think people understand pretty well. Um, you know, you might have difficulty breathing a little bit. Some of your conditions are worse. Um, but we also do, unfortunately, see longer-term effects. So um, the WHO now recognizes that air pollution uh, causes cancer and um, also contributes to heart disease. So we are going to see that some, some of these exposures do contribute to longer-term health outcomes. We also, unfortunately, have seen that exposure for uh, for uh, Babies prenatally, so before birth, um, also can affect them um, in terms of their birth weight and and outcomes. So we do think there are long-term impacts, uh, but you're right. We have to figure out, you know, how 
how we're going to live with this. I do think there are opportunities to improve our exposure. So, for example, ozone, that's related to emissions from vehicles and other things where, you know, if we switch to a more electric uh, mode of transportation, then that's actually going to improve. But things like wildfire smoke, you know, with climate change, we do expect that's going to get worse. So, you know, the, there, there are going to be risks going forward. Yeah. Dr. Emily Newhouse, very informative. Really appreciate your time and all the work you do on this. Where can people go? Just list that website for me one more time to find out exactly what's going on, where, and um, how they should, you know, make their plans. Yeah. So Metro Vancouver issues the air quality for the lower issues air quality advisories for the lower mainland. So if you want to keep up on the air quality advisories, I recommend going to metrovancouver.org. And if you want to learn more about our air quality all over the province, I recommend going to the government of BC. Um, The Ministry of Environment, if you just Google air quality health index, you'll find the website that has that information. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Newhouse, and um, have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Scott Chance in for Jill Bennett on your Friday. When is it okay to defend yourself against wildlife in this province and in, and in our country, depending on where you are? There's been lots of talk of black bears lately. Uh, there was a black bear in New West that had to be uh, tranquilized and taken care of. Uh, it seems like everywhere, everyone you talk to has seen or encountered, even at a distance, uh, a black bear to some degree. And this story uh, really caught my attention. A hiker in Alberta, this was in Jasper National Park, uh, has been fined $7,500 for actually shooting a black bear. He went for a hike and took a firearm with him. He was with some friends, kind of hung back, went went to leave uh, by his own. He wanted to turn around and hike back to the trailhead. Encountered a black bear. As the story goes, he fired a warning shot. The bear didn't retreat, and as a result, he said he was afraid for his safety. Ended up shooting this bear, which ran off into the woods and wasn't found, so we're not really sure about the fate of the bear. And now he's been fined $7,500 for shooting the bear in a national park. Now, where I live in North Vancouver, there's bears all the time. I had a bear in my garbage can this morning. I uh, fortunately heard him, opened the window, yelled at him, he ran away. But this happens all the time, and they're not always chill. They're not always like calm, relaxed, like black bears are, are supposed to be. Last year, I had a bear climb on top of our fence. We have sort of like a container box thing that's been built to keep the garbage cans and keep the bears out of the garbage cans. The bear wanted the garbage, couldn't get to it. So he stood up on top of the fence and I leaned out the second floor window to, you know, kind of try to shoo the bear away. And to this day, you can come to the side of my house. I kind of show this off to people. And you can see about 15 feet up on the side of my house are two identical claw marks from the bear kind of lunging up the side of my house at me as I tried to shoo it away. You know, he didn't get near high enough, but it was really aggressive. It was really aggressive. And if that bear had been in my backyard when I had been out there with my dog or my kids or my family, what then? What then? What if you're scared for your life? What if it's a cougar? We know cougars are aggressive animals. So here to help me sort of try to unpack some of this stuff is associate professor from the School of Environment and Sustainability and a former national park warden, Douglas Clark. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Clark. 
Hey, a pleasure, Scott. I, uh, I'm happy, or intrigued to hear about your stories. I, I want to come to your house and see those claw marks now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, my daughter knows they're there, and she shows them off to, to friends and stuff as well. Like, we have lots of claw marks on the fence, you know, from just the bear kind of sniffing around. But this was crazy. He, like, got up on top. You know, the bear box is, like, five feet high, and he stood up on his hind legs. And it was just, like, you know, my wife heard me sort of, like, freak out, drop my cell phone, you know, because I was trying to take a picture of it like you do. But when or, when or ever is it okay to shoot an animal like a black bear in self-defense or because you're scared for your safety? Oh boy. Um, that's a, that's a really challenging question to answer quickly because the, the, the answer is it depends. Uh, to, to, to speak to that situation in Jasper, um, first off, that guy really misread the risks. Um, there are thousands of encounters between black bears and people uh, you know, across Canada and then right across North America every year. And the majority of them are, you know, are like yours. Even if the bear gives you a bit of a show, um, you know, there's no harm done on, on either side. Um, the, the number of, of people injured or killed by bears every year in North America is uh, far less than the number injured or killed by bees or even roller coasters. Wow. Uh, now, that stat may be a little bit out of date, but uh, certainly last time I, I had numbers that I could compare, it, it, it worked out that way. Um, so killing an animal is absolutely last uh, a, a, an action of last resort. But, but let's back up a bit to the Jasper situation first. Not only did he misread the risks, he did something um, that, that there are large plywood warning signs uh, telling you not to do in a national park, which is bringing a firearm. And uh, for most people in most situations, certainly hiking on a trail in Jasper in August, um, you know, a, a firearm is absolutely unnecessary. And by doing what he did um, and, you know, having, you know, made some, some pretty grievous errors of judgment, um, he created a risk for himself, for other people, and, and injured a bear. Now, 20-gauge shotgun, uh, for listeners who know firearms, um, much depends on, on what kind of ammunition he used, and I don't have that information. Much also depends on where he hit the bear, and again, I don't have that information either, but, um, you know, from, from what I do know about that situation, uh, it's, it, it's, not a, it, it's, it's absolutely not a situation where I would have, you know, considered a firearm necessary or that kind of action appropriate. Now, there are all kinds of other uh, situations and context, you know, like you talking about your backyard. Um, there's typically an awful lot of other things we can all do in most situations and better choices and better precautions and devices we've got available to us uh, than having to kill an animal or having to call somebody in a uniform to come and kill the animal. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really a, a question of knowing what's going on around you, whether that's, you know, in your backyard or what's outside your yard fence uh, or, you know, what's down the hiking trail. Um, getting informed, staying informed, being aware when you're, when you're, you're outside and, uh, you know, and, and working out what kind of precaution is appropriate and is also legal. Um, you know, that, 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 that guy in Jasper um, contravened the National Parks Act in at least two different ways, uh, one of which involves jail time, by the way, uh, and uh, he got off lucky. Had he not pled guilty, um, it, it would have been much, much more, uh, more significant yeah. penalty. 
Yeah, you mentioned that, that he got off light on this one. And I, I do think that, you know, $7,500 could have been up to ten grand. It was one of the numbers that I'd read. I mean, if it's, if it's between my dog or, you know, a young, a young kid or that type of thing, that number seems small, obviously. But, yep. you know, I think a lot of us, like myself, we want to do the right thing. Here in BC, we have bears all the time. If you live on the North Shore, if you mountain bike, if you've been up to Whistler, it, it's an everyday occurrence that we see them. And to your point... They, they never get shot because there's never incidents. People know if you grow up here, you kind of, we've had the North Shore Black, Black Bear Society on. We know how to deal with bears. But what about, like, there, there is that, you know, sort of really, really odd occasion when, uh, you know, we've heard talks on Vancouver Island of cougars. People have noted cougars stalking. Or very recently, a pack of coyotes attacked a mm-hmm. dog on a hiking trail. Situations like that. Um, you know, because bears a little more gentle. What if it's a more aggressive animal? Sure. Well, you know, bears, even black bears can be predatory on people and can be just as aggressive as, uh, as anything else out there. You know, we often, we often try to kind of categorize animals in this hierarchy of danger, but, uh, you, you know, those examples you just mentioned are really great ones because pretty much any medium sized to large carnivore is capable of really seriously injuring or killing a person. Fortunately, they don't do it very often. Uh, and you know, what you need to do if you're in a place where they're around is, you know, figure out what, um, you know, starters, figure out what other people who've lived in the area longer and know those risks do. Um, You know, when I moved up to Churchill, Manitoba in the 1990s uh, with a new national park up there, um, people up there taught me a whole lot about, uh, about polar bears. Then we started seeing grizzly bears and, you know, people up there were, well, yeah, we know polar bears. These things are new. What are they all about? And, uh, you know, there was some apprehension back then, but I was hiring wardens from the Rocky mountain parks. They knew grizzlies. They didn't know polar bears. So their comfort level was completely different. So, you know, really getting informed is the very, very best thing you can do. And BC is a great place for this because you've got so many organizations in the province and in individual communities to help get the word out, uh, to help people reduce attractants that can bring bears around your home and your property. And that's really, really key when it comes to bears in particular. Uh, and, you know, and, and provide good advice and good information. Um, you know, the the Whistler, North Shore, Vancouver, you know, they're local community-based organizations that are absolutely world leaders in bear human safety. Um, you know, the things that were done during the during the Olympics up in Whistler, uh, the garbage control efforts. Um, you know, they're specialized dogs, Karelian bear dogs, bred to deter bears. Mm. And there, there are organizations out there in BC where, uh, you know, trained responders with their Karelian bear dogs, um, you know, they'll come and they'll, they'll work a bear that's uh, causing a problem. And they're, they're tremendously effective. Yeah. So, you know, in, in BC, you're set up really well. You've got a lot of good sources of information and you've got an awful lot of help when you need it. Yeah. And I, I also make the point to people that, you know, we're lucky. It's a really lucky thing to be able to see bears as often as we do, as close as we do, you know, and to your point, I, like growing up here, we, we know we make noise when we hike, we have bear bell on the backpack, yeah. you know, you take the bear spray just in case, but yeah, like it's really, really possible. I, I, to, to, 
to live here to experience our wildlife and our culture and stuff without doing harm. And we definitely don't want to do that because they are so majestic and so, so cool to see, even if they're just sniffing around for a little bit of garbage. Uh, it's associate professor from the University of Sask Saskatchewan School of Environment and Sustainability, Professor Douglas Clark. Thank you so much for, uh, for the information this afternoon. Pleasure, Scott. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett on your Friday afternoon, uh, bringing the heat with the song choice. That's our producer, Tim French. Uh, I want to talk about alcohol and boating, and specifically alcohol and canoeing. Perhaps you've seen this story. A, ca a canoeer, excuse me, not a kayaker. A canoeer, is that what you call them? A canoeer, a person in a canoe, a paddler, has been arrested uh, up in Grand Forks after canoeing under the influence on Christina Lake. Uh, police say that operating a vehicle while impaired is still illegal, even if it's a canoe. So I have questions about this, and here to help sort this out and maybe answer some of my questions is a lawyer from Acumen Law, Kyla Lee. Thanks so much for being here, Kyla. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Now, I understand, and I think we all understand, no one is going to argue this point, that getting behind the wheel of a motor vehicle while impaired, terrible idea, don't do it, never do it, the punishment fits the crime, all of that type of stuff, right? Because we understand the consequences. But a canoe, does it seem a little bit different? Does it seem like this is sort of a silly thing to be arrested for? I mean, on its face, yes, it does seem a little bit silly, especially if you're own, alone in the canoe. I mean, you're taking your own life in, in your own hands, and that's, you know, what, what people do when they drink generally, because people don't make the best decisions. But there is some rationale underscoring the law. Um, it's that when you're boating, uh, obviously, you're not just dealing with yourself. There are other people using the broadway, whether it's swimmers, whether it's other boaters. And if you're not making good decisions when you're in your boat, you could could end up posing a hazard to those people um, and causing death or injury. In addition, if you have passengers with you, that can also put their lives at risk. Yeah, and of course I understand that when it comes to motorboats and powerboats and all of that type of thing. I think you need to be extremely cautious and careful uh, when using the water. But this kind of feels to me, and I want to ask you about this as well, like kind of maybe getting on a bike, you know, after having a drink. Because if a bike collides with a car, I mean, I, I understand you're taking your own health and your own safety, putting that at risk. But the chances of you hurting someone else, and I also, it's they're so low, and I also feel like, you know, hey, I got on a bike after having a few drinks to ride my bike somewhere. At least I didn't get behind the wheel. You know, maybe I have too far to go to walk, so I'm going to bike, but that that's illegal too, right? Uh, well, biking while intoxicated is a little more confusing. So canoeing while intoxicating is actually prohibited under criminal law. Um, so it's operation of any vessel. And because the definition of vessel in the criminal code and in um, other marine laws includes canoes or vessels that are powered by uh, sort of your physical power, that's why we have laws against drunk canoeing. With cycling, we have provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act that apply to cyclists as though they apply to drivers, but it's not actually a criminal offense. 
to ride your bike while intoxicated. I see. Okay. So this person, a 51-year-old, he was out canoeing and people said, hey, this doesn't seem like this guy's got it all together. So the police went out there to try and talk to him. And the story gets a little silly. He kind of tried to flee from them and he hid under a dock and the police couldn't get him to come out from under the dock. I don't mean to laugh, but eventually a police officer got in the water and had to, you know, pull him out and remove him. He spent some time in jail. He's been released with the promise to appear. Is this one of those things where if he had just sort of said, oh, I didn't know, you know, I was just trying to have a good time, nobody got hurt, the police might have just said, okay, don't do it anymore. Because we know that happens too, right? That does happen. And for a long time, the law in relation to operating a canoe while intoxicated was not clear. It's, it, I doubt that the police would have just let him go. Um, they probably would have done some breath tests at the very least and then made a decision based on what he blew. But, you know, by aggravating the situation, by hiding out and trying to obstruct the investigation and not coming to the shore and making the police officer get wet, he only made it worse. He only motivated the police to take the worst possible avenue for him rather than exercising some leniency and using education over enforcement. Yeah, it never seems a good idea to make a police officer have to get in the water, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> seems seems like a bad course of action. And that could be considered a separate offense um, on its own. So, you know, even if the prosecution thought there might not be enough evidence to prove that he was impaired while operating the canoe, maybe he was just in a wobbly canoe on on its own or not very good at canoeing. um, The fact that he hid out under the dock and and engaged in this type of conduct could lead to him also being charged with obstruction. Um, And it's Crown Counsel who determine what charges to approve and what charges to lay. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were also to lay that type of a charge in the circumstances here. Okay. Now, why do you think it is? Because it almost seems like boating and water sports feels like, um, at least in some people's minds, it just feels different than being behind the wheel of a car. I know people get out on the lake or um, at the beach and, you know, we get around water and it just seems like, hey, let's have a good time. This is all good. People have open container in boats. It's just, it feels like a a common thing. It almost seems like that we, we carry less regard for that than we do for, you know, drinking and driving. There's a lot of reasons for it, but I think one primary reason is that we have had, you know, over the last 50 years, very consistent, very strong messaging um, from uh, mem- other members of the public, from police, from government, about the evils of impaired driving. And we've also seen, you know, most people either have been in a car accident or have seen a car accident, um, whether it's horrific or minor. And so they know about the effects of car accidents from, you know, first or second second-hand information, whereas a lot of people are more removed from boating. We associate boating with recreation and fun, and we associate the consumption of alcohol with recreation and fun. So when you're engaged in an activity where we don't have that messaging, where it's associated with the same sort of feelings and emotions that we relate to alcohol consumption, it's easy to see why people can't seem to separate the two, even though they should be. So if I am out on a boat, say we're up in the Okanagan for vacation, out on the lake, somebody brings a cooler along, everybody seems to dip in. If the driver doesn't, the person operating the boat, it, like what is the actual law there around alcohol consumption on a, on a boat? 
So it's anyone who's assisting in the operation of the vessel that is not supposed to be impaired by alcohol. Um, there are also some other laws just in respect of like open containers in, in boats and things like that. Those aren't really enforced, okay. <laughs> as we've seen. But um, there, it's assisting in the operation of the vessel. So you could have a situation where multiple people in a boat end up charged with impaired operation because somebody's operating the rudder, somebody's steering the wheel, somebody is, you know, dealing with the motor. I'm not much of a boater. (laughs) Or if you're in a canoe, you've got multiple people paddling. All of those people could end up charged. We actually saw this in Ontario in um, the case where uh, I think it was uh, the the premier's or the mayor a mayor's wife I'm trying to remember who it was um, was was uh, a person who was involved in a boating accident and there was some suggestion that perhaps maybe the politician was also involved in the operation of the vessel and so uh, there has been incidents where identifying who was actually operating the vessel or who was assisting in the operation becomes a difficult matter. But if you're alone in the boat, it makes it pretty easy for police to say who was operating it. Yeah, absolutely. We all want to get out on the water and we all want to have a bit of fun, especially at this time of year. And it seems like a, you know, a laissez-faire type of thing, but I suppose the consequences could, of course, be much, much more serious than we anticipate. So just practice, you know, the safe, the safe use of consumption. Is there some place that people can go to to find out, find these laws and find out about responsible boating and alcohol use? Um, absolutely. There are uh, the British Columbia government um, publishes a lot of resources related to responsible boating uh, practices in BC. You can also register for uh, the boat licensing course um, and take your boat licensing course uh, through the province that will give you information about safe operation of boats. And of course, you can look at the criminal code um, and uh, the uh, relevant uh, legal provisions that apply to operation of boats to make sure that you're never afoul of the law. Fantastic. Always a wealth of information. Kyla Lee, she's a lawyer with Acumen Law. Thanks so much, Kyla. Thanks for having me.